After his return from the defeat of Catalamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him the tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Thank you, Janie. You did way better than I would have done with those words. This is one of those Sundays where I'm so glad we have somebody else read the scripture before we, I preach, because those are some crazy names in there. But Janie, I know you weren't happy with me because you, you, well, you told me that. And just so you know, like we could have done the whole chapter. And if you look back at the beginning of chapter 14, it gets really wild. And so I actually, I was doing you a favor. That's what I was doing. I'm on your side. This story, Genesis chapter 14, where we, where we started reading in verse 17, we're kind of jumping into the middle of this story. And if you've been following along in our Genesis series, then you know that we actually skipped over chapter 13. We were in 12 last week and we've skipped over completely chapter 13. It's not because there's something there that we're scared of. Chapter 13 is the beginning, kind of the foundation of the story of, this, of Abraham's nephew named Lot and him deciding to go live near Sodom, and then eventually live in Sodom. And so what we decided to do is take Lot's story, because he's kind of a side story, side character in the whole book of Genesis, and when we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit later, we're going to come back and pick up the background in chapter 13. So we're just kind of taking a different approach than just every single verse, the next verse in the story. Uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of put Lot's story all in one sermon a little bit later. So in Genesis chapter 14... There's this, there's this really crazy story that develops, and we just looked at the very end part of it, kind of the after the battle scene. In Genesis chapter 14, you have the, this war going on, this, this huge battle going on. In fact, it, it's the first war in the history of the world that's recorded for us. We don't know if there's anything before this, but as, as far as something recorded, this is the first war that's ever recorded. And so there's these, there's these kings that had all made an alliance. So you had all these different, like, tribes of people and all these different kingdoms all over the promised land, all over the Canaan, and all these different cities had developed this, these, their little mini kingdoms. And so they had all these kingdoms and they had made an alliance, and that alliance worked for about 12 years. They were all kind of submitting to the rule of this one king that you see his name, Ketalarmar, and they were kind of, he was kind of in charge of them, and so they had this kind of this peace for about 12 years. In the 13th year, a few of the kings kind of revolted against his reign, and it escalated into a war. It turned into a war where he, was, he started to decide to exercise his dominance and conquer those kingdoms back. And so this war breaks out, and a couple of the kings that revolted were the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, and this war broke out between five kings who revolted in their kingdoms and the four kings led by Kedalaramar, so fun to say. And they came in and the four kings and their kingdoms routed 
the five kings and their kingdoms. In fact, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, just fled the scene. They got stuck in this pit. There was just, it was just a rout. And when that happened, the kings that were winning, they went and they ransacked Sodom. They ransacked Gomorrah. And they took spoils. They took the possessions. They even took people as captives. And they decided to go back. And just basically, that was their, their win. The battle was over in their mind. But when they took Sodom... Lot was there, and they took him. And so somebody escapes. One person, we don't even know who it was, he escaped, and he went and found Abram living in his tent with all of his people. He's not a king. He's kind of just a tribesman out there. And for all practical purposes, he's kind of watching everything develop around him. And somebody comes and says, hey, your nephew Lot was taken captive. And so Abram rallies all of his men. He says there there were these trained men that served alongside Abram, 318 of them, the Bible's pretty exact on that, and they chase down these other kings, these four kings and their kingdoms, and they find them out there at night, and they spread out, and they attack them, 318 against four kings and their kingdoms, and they attack them, and they overcome them, and they actually rout them. They, they chase them away. They chase them as far as Damascus. They just chase them down the road to the north, and so they continue to Uh, have a victory. Abram wins this great victory and he takes all the possessions back and he takes all the people back that have been stolen, that have been taken captive and he's on his way back from this victory, this battle that these five kings were defeated and then Abram with 318 men go in and take it all back. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing, amazing battle scene. What we want to do is kind of look at the last part of that because on his way back he's met by two kings and the valley of the king or the king's valley and as he comes back and he's met by these two kings one of them the king of Sodom who's Abram's literally rescued his people and his possessions and then the other one is this king of Salem this Melchizedek and he wasn't ever listed as being involved in the battle at all but he meets Abram at the same time and these two kings kind of come with a different approach to Abram and then Abram has to respond to their, what they're doing, what they've come and said to him and what, what they come and offer him or what they, they come and ask of him. And Abram responds. And so on, on the surface of the story, that's what it is. It's Abram returning from a battle that he won and he's met by these two kings and these two kings have something for him. And so there's a lot we can learn on the surface of the story. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but here's, here's what this story is going to give us a chance to do. It's going to give us a chance to talk about some of these practical observations right on the surface of what we see happening here. And this is going to give us a chance to zoom out and have this really, really wide angle look at the book of Genesis and really the Old Testament and how uh, we say this all the time, it all points to Christ. So let's just make a couple observations. What we see from the story as Janie read for us that we can learn from the story, maybe even take what we see Abram do here and put it into practice or at least apply it to our lives. And the first observation I think that we should make is that temptation often comes after a victory. Temptation often comes after a victory. Abram has just won this amazing victory, 318 versus four kings in their kingdoms, and they've just won a battle themselves, and Abram is coming back from that victory, he's coming back from this great thing he's done for God, and then he's faced with a test. Right at the very beginning of this, you, you see that the king of Sodom, and come, Sodom comes out, and Sodom, and Sodom, I keep saying his name wrong, Sodom, I keep saying Solomon, it's just, I don't know, it's all mixed up. So, the king of Sodom, He comes and he has 
basically requests. He doesn't even make it politely. He says, hey, give me back my possessions. And give me back my people. And then you can keep the possessions. And so this king, and here's what we know about Sodom. It was wicked. It was an extremely wicked city. In fact, in Genesis 13, it says that this city was wicked and these people were great sinners against God. We'll see that further on in the story. And so he basically, without even necessarily thanking Abram for rescuing his people and getting his possessions, he just offers Abram a deal. He offers him a bargain. Hey, you can keep the possessions that you won back, but give me back my people. And Abram all of a sudden has an opportunity to enter into a partnership with the king of Sodom. He has an opportunity in front of him to enter into a partnership with the most wicked king around, from the most wicked city around. And so there's this test right in front of him. Right after the victory, right after the the amazing thing he's done, he has this other test that comes and he's got to decide, am I going to depend upon God? Am I going to trust God? And we know that Abram is always kind of trying to go back, back and forth there. He's trying to trust God, but every now and then he, he wavers and he falls back a little bit. That's what we talked about last week. But in the middle of this scene, we're going to see, is he going to trust God or is he going to enter into a partnership that could be really beneficial for him? To have all these possessions that he's just won back in this battle added to his wealth is going to make him way wealthier than he's ever been. Like it's going to expound his wealth in, in crazy ways. And in this moment, in this testing, he says no. He he looks at him, he says, I made a vow to God that I would not take anything. Uh, Verse 23, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, because if I do, you would say, and you could say, I've made Abram rich. Now, God had promised to bless Abram. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to pour out blessings on you. If you will trust me, if you'll follow me, if you'll go into the unknown, I will pour out blessing on you. And here's Abram with this test right in front of him. Oh, here's a, here's a, here's a shortcut. Here's a fast track to getting the blessings that maybe God was talking about. And sometimes it's really tempting to see this shortcut over here where we just compromise a little bit, enter a partnership with this really evil, wicked, worldly king. And, but, but it's maybe how God's going to answer that prayer. But Abram stands strong in this moment. He resists that temptation in that, in that, in that moment. He says, I'm not going to take anything, not a thread of a garment, not a, not a sandal strap. I mean, for us, that's a shoestring, right, kids? Are you listening? Just say yes, Pastor Kai. It's fine with me. <laughs> yes, Pastor Shu, okay. But just remember, it's okay with yes, Pastor Kai. He said, he said, I'm not going to take a shoestring. I, I pulled this out of one of Dub's shoes. I'm not telling Dub which one. Uh, I'm not, I wouldn't even take a shoestring for you. I will not compromise in any way. I will not bow down at all. I will not enter to a partnership with a wicked king and a wicked kingdom. I'm going to depend upon God. I'm going to trust that God's plan to bless me does not have compromise involved. I won't take a sandal strap. I won't take a shoestring. I won't take a thread. You would say that you made me rich if I did that. I'm not going to do that. He's not going to give in. But that principle that guides this whole thing is remember that sometimes right after the battle, right after the victory, that's when temptation comes in. And the reason is because we let our guard down. Man, when we're in the battle, 
You, you just heard some amazing stories and testimonies, and I hope that you'll pursue some of our students and get them to tell more of the story, because we limit their time so much up here, that you heard these, these stories of this engagement of God's work, spreading his kingdom, helping his kingdom to advance in some very, very dark and difficult places. And we can be so engaged in the battle, and we can be so focused, and we can, man, we were, as these students are serving, they're, they're reading their Bible together, they're praying, they're praying big prayers for God to use them in amazing ways. And then you come home from those kinds of experiences sometimes, and you just like, we just are, in our culture, we have this rhythm where we just relax. We just take the, take the foot off the gas. And we go, man, I, yeah, I'm a, I, I've earned some time to relax a little bit. I mean, that's when the enemy comes in and he, he provides temptation that we would never give into when we're fully engaged in the mission, when we're fully engaged in the battle, when we're, we're seeing God do amazing things. But when we take our foot off the gas and when we let our guard down, he comes in and he tempts us. Temptation often comes after a victory. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, sometimes you face your greatest dangers after you've won a battle. It's after the capture of Jericho that Israel's self-confidence led into defeat at Ai. After his success on Mount Carmel, God brought down fire in front of all the prophets of Baal. After that success, Elijah panicked and ran away in fear, 1 Kings 19. No wonder the saintly Scottish pastor Andrew Bonar said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. So important for us to know. If we're following Christ, there isn't an off season. If we're following Christ, there's not a chance for us to just kind of say, you know what, I don't need to worry about engaging right now. I did a whole lot of things and I did some amazing stuff and now I get to just take some time off. That doesn't exist for us. This this life that God calls us to is always a mission. This life that God calls us to is continually to make his name famous and to make him known everywhere that we are. That's why we teach our students that missions is not about a trip, it's about a lifestyle. It's about living on mission. And you never disengage from that. When you do, you let your guard down and temptation comes. And we know that we can't do that. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So what do you do? You, you never let your guard down. You stay on watch. You stay on alert. You stay on the mission. You stay engaged. You come back from youth camp, and man, you have this emotional, spiritual high, all the good things that God has taught you and you've seen do, and you've been praying, you've been in the Bible, you've been studying the Bible together as a youth group, and it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to let your guard down. It's so easy to walk away from that. It's so easy to talk. I'm just going to coast for a little while, and temptation comes in when we start coasting. Temptation comes most, most often after the battle when we've let our guard down. So we need to stay alert and stay diligent. The next response or the next observation I think that we can make in this passage is that giving is always really a response to God's blessing. And this is where it, it, the scene shifts to the first part of this when the king of Salem, this guy named Melchizedek, shows up. He wasn't involved in the battle. He doesn't, he's not trying to get people back. He comes to provide a blessing for Abram in this moment. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He's, he brings a gift. And then it says this about him. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him. He blessed Abram, and he said this. Blessed be Abram by God most high, 
God who's the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this, this king of Salem, Melchizedek shows up on the scene. He meets Abram at the same place, the, the valley of the king. And he says, I'm, I'm just here to bless you. I'm, I, wanna, I wanna bless you. Bless, God has blessed you, Abram. And then he points him to this blessing that God has done. He said, God's the one who gave you the victory here. 318 should never beat four kings in their kingdoms. So God has given you the victory. So blessed be you, Abram, and blessed be God, the possessor of heaven and earth who gave you this victory. Everything that you have is because of God giving it to you. And then here's what Abram does, the end of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek shows up and he provides a blessing. He pronounces a blessing on Abram and he reminds Abram that everything that good happened because God gave it to him. He gives him that, that truth. He pronounces that truth. And Abram responds by tithing to Melchizedek, giving him a tenth of everything. And so our giving, giving here, it's always a response to God's blessing. Giving is this response. It's like, you know, yeah, this is exactly right. God gave me this blessing. God gave me this victory. And so I'm going to give in response to what God has done for me. Giving is a response to God's blessing. And then I was thinking about this point. I was thinking about our body and I was thinking about the, the history of this church. And I mean, there's so many people in this church like are so generous we, we've seen that from day one. We've seen people that have believed in this work and have seen this work and said, we want to contribute to this and have given uh, amazingly, sacrificially to this work. And I see people all the time. I mean, it's blown me away in so many different ways throughout our history that I've seen people give with such generosity and I've seen them give with joyful hearts. I've seen them give because God has blessed them. And it's such a reminder to us today, man, that it should be an encouragement to us today that when we give in response to God's blessing, it's exactly what God is looking for. It's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And it's not because we have to. It's not because we, we're, we're told that we're supposed to do that. It's because we're acknowledging that everything good has come from God. We're acknowledging that he's the giver of all good things, that we are responding to his blessing by saying he's the possessor of heaven and earth. Everything we have is his, and I'm gonna to respond to that by giving. And our response is a joyful response. We've been blessed so much, we're gonna give back. It's just an amazing thing to think about that we don't, we don't give because of compulsion, we don't give because it's, our, oh, we, it's, it's some kind of requirement that we're supposed to give a certain amount to to God and to the church. We don't give because God needs that money. He already owns it. You don't give your time and your talents because God needs that. He's already in control of all of it. We give because it's a response to his blessing. We don't give because the church needs that. We've said this from day one. We will do as much ministry as God provides the resources to, to do. Like we'll just, we want to be faithful and obedient with whatever God puts in front of us. And if that means that we can do this because the resources are there, then we're just going to trust God in that. And so when you give, it's not because, oh man, I got to give because this church is really going to struggle. I mean, I got to give so we'll get out of the YMCA someday. 
Like we're just gonna be, we're gonna be faithful to what he's given us. We're gonna trust him in the middle of this process to give us exactly what we need to do the ministry that he's called us to do. So we get the chance to bless these students and, and provide a lot of funds for these mission trips that they go on and all the people that go and serve on our, uh, from our church. We get a chance to bless people in need in our church. We get a chance to, uh, to really come alongside people that are going through this adoption process like you heard at the beginning uh, of our service. We get a chance to do that because you guys have been faithful to give, not because we need that and we're gonna, we're gonna we're really struggle without it because we're just gonna do what God has called us to do and he provides the resources. So we don't give because God needs it. We don't give because the church needs it. We give because God has blessed us. Our giving is a response to what God has done. And so you see in the story that Abram responded by giving 10% of everything. It's the tithe. And there's some people that would say, well, yeah, that tithe, is, that's an Old Testament principle. That's, that's tied to the law, right? And so the, I'm living in the New Testament. I'm not going to worry about the tithe. That's fine. Just acknowledge the fact that this happened right here before the law was ever given. This is, this is pre-law. This is pre-requirement. This is Abram just showing us the Bible, giving us a picture of a starting place of a 10% gift before the law. You say, well, yeah, it's still Old Testament. I want to embrace the New Testament. That's, that's awesome. Embrace the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see sacrificial giving. We see people giving, selling a field and taking all the money and giving it to the church. Which, by the way, if you're, you have a field, don't sell it. Come talk to us first. We could use a field. That'd be kind of cool. Um, but the New Testament encourages response giving, heartfelt giving, sacrificial giving. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7 says it this way. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God, God honors the gift of the heart when it says, man, everything I have is his, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give sacrificially. I'm gonna give because I need to give. I need to acknowledge that God's the giver of all good things. I'm not gonna give because he's told, he needs it or because the church needs it. I'm gonna give because of that. And so be encouraged, church, that your faithfulness, God sees that, he loves your heart. He, he's excited about your generosity and your responsive giving. And if you're not, that's not you yet. You've been, you've been part of this church and you haven't made that decision to make giving a, a part of the discipline of your Christian experience. Let me just challenge you to consider that today. Consider what you might give. Decide in your heart what you might give as a response to God's blessing in your life. And just remember that if you wanna, if you wanna sow bountifully, you give bountifully. If you wanna sow sparingly, and that's your choice, God wants you to give with your heart as a response. So in that story, you see that. You see his response to the two different kings. He refuses to compromise. He passes the test with the king of Sodom, and, Sodom, and then he goes to the king of Salem, and he responds by giving in response to the blessing that Melchizedek pronounced on him. And so that's, that's some observations we can make from the story. But I want to zoom out. I want to, this story gives us a chance to see that big picture. And the big picture is that all of our Bible is pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And that's important. We say that all the time. But it's important to really understand that. Because a lot of times we literally don't know what to do with our Old Testament, don't we? kind of look at it and we're like, man, what, what is this? Like there's so much, 
so much difference in that between the New Testament. And sometimes we take our eyes off the fact that the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus, that the Old Testament is, is merely setting the stage for Jesus to show up and fulfill everything in the Old Testament. And the evidence that we struggle with this sometimes is pretty clear because of what we do with the Old Testament. Because what we typically do is we do one of two things with the Old Testament. We look at them as, as hero stories. We look at all these stories and we've, we've grown up, kind of some of us have grown up listening to these stories and we're like, man, this, this Moses guy, this Abraham guy, his faith was amazing. Daniel, David, all these people, Esther, Ruth, like we see these stories and we kind of put these people up on a pedestal and we say, man, this is who we ought to be. We're, we see them as models for our life. Like I'm supposed to be like this. I'm supposed to have the faith. I'm supposed to have the, 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 the strength of David, the confidence of David. I'm supposed to do these things. I'm supposed to follow God like this. And we put these guys up on this pedestal and we see these as hero stories that we're supposed to copy. But then we grow up and we mature and we realize that a couple things. Number one, that these guys weren't always perfect. So there's a lot of ways that we don't want to copy them. And then the other side of that is we realize, man, even, even on our best days, we're not like what these guys did. And it's kind of discouraging when you only see these stories as examples by which we should strive to be like. It kind of gets discouraging because we realize, man, I'm, I'm more like Abraham on the bad days than I am or ever, ever have, am like him on the good days. You say, man, the heroes in the Bible, like I'm not sure if I'm any, anywhere near these guys. I may be more like Jonah. And it's kind of discouraging when we think about that because they're not really designed to be hero stories. But when we treat them that way, it gets discouraging in the end because we're like, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. And so here's what we do next. As soon as we realize we don't measure up to these stories, we go, oh, I know what these are for. These are for the kids. Let's teach these stories to our children. Maybe they'll do something better. Maybe they'll grow up and be like Noah and they'll be like Moses and they'll be like Daniel and they'll be like David and they'll be like Esther. Maybe, maybe if we teach our children these stories. And so we go, yeah, Old Testament. That's why we have Veggie Tales. It's exactly why. You like to talk to tomatoes, if a squash can make you smile, we got a story for you to inspire the kids. But that breaks down too, doesn't it? Because in order to make these, kids, these stories children's stories, we've got to water them down a little bit. We've got to take out some important details. I mean, this, we just covered a few weeks ago the story of Noah and the ark, the great flood. In order to make that a children's story, and it's a great children's story. I mean, you can sit down with the kids and go, man, kids, listen, this is a story. And, and, and God said he's going to send the flood. And he, he, Noah built the ark. And so God said, hey, Noah, get your family. Everybody get on the boat. And Noah got his family and went on the boat. And then, and then all the animals came. It was amazing. Two by two, the animals came. There was, a, there was a daddy lion and a mommy lion. It was so sweet and so cute. And there was a, there was a daddy white-tailed deer and there was a mama white-tailed deer, buck and a doe, they were, they were there. And there was a daddy bobcat and a mommy bobcat, a daddy turkey and a mommy turkey, and it's almost hunting season. And like you see all these things, these animals, they just came, all the animals came two by two as God was protecting them on the ark. Isn't that a great story? And then you go, and then they all got on the ark and God shut the door. And then God sent a flood and killed everybody else. Drowned all the other people. Drowned all the other animals. Night, night, kids. <laughs> Sleep tight. Kids, are you listening? Yes, Pastor Kai. Remember that. This was Pastor Kai that did that. 
Like we have to water down these stories to make them children's stories. We have to take out some parts. And so they must not just be children's stories. They must not be hero stories because we don't measure up. So what are they for? Here's what they're for. They point us to Jesus. When we see a hero in the Old Testament, he's supposed to be or she's supposed to be a shadow of the great hero that is to come. So you see the story of David and Goliath, and we love to think that we're David and we're fighting giants, but we're not David in that story. We're the Israelites hiding in the tents because we know we can't beat the giant. David is the shadow of Jesus. He's, the, he's, he's this type of Jesus in the Old Testament that Jesus is going to come. He's going to win the ultimate battle over the ultimate giant, sin and death. He's going to conquer that. He's going to deliver us from that. And he's going to give us a victory even though we did nothing to earn it. We were hiding out in the tents and we were powerless. David is pointing us to Jesus. He's not saying, hey, be like David. He's saying, no, David provides a victory that you and I could never earn. So that's what the Old Testament's for. It's pointing us to Jesus. It's preparing the way for Jesus to show up. So what do we do with this story? Well, it seems so random on the surface. Melchizedek, we don't know anything about him. We don't know where he came from. We, he's not in any of the genealogy lists. In fact, it just, he just shows up. And we could just skip over this story and just move on and go, okay, we learned a couple things and move on. But then here's what happens. In Psalm 110, the writer of the psalm is pointing towards the day when the Messiah is going to come. And he's, he basically makes this proclamation that there's going to be a priest that will come to rescue us. And he'll be of the order of Melchizedek. And he brings Melchizedek into the story. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and spends most of two chapters, Hebrews three chapters, five, six, and seven, most of those chapters he spends talking about and comparing Melchizedek to the Messiah, to Jesus. And what we learn from the writer of Hebrews is that Melchizedek is a shadow of Jesus to come. And it's, it's teaching us something. By looking at this random event and this random story of this king of Salem who shows up and blesses Abram, what we're learning is something about Jesus that can really, really help us today. Because what we're learning from Melchizedek is that Jesus is the great high priest. And so I want us to just focus on that for just a, just a couple minutes. That Jesus is the great high priest we were desperately looking for. That Melchizedek was this high priest that came and blessed Abram and Abram responded with, with giving him a responsive offering. And Melchizedek is just pointing us to Jesus. Melchizedek was a great high priest of the most high God, but Jesus is better. He's the ultimate high priest. And so here's what we, here's what we know about Jesus as the high priest. At first, he's from the order of Melchizedek. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 110. That's what the writer of Hebrews says over and over again. What that means is that he's not in the line of the priest. The priest came through the, the descendants of Levi, the priest came through the sense of Aaron, Moses' brother. They came through this certain tribe of Israel. And Melchizedek shows up, and we don't know anything about his genealogy. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his mom and dad were. We don't even know. We have nothing to, to go by on where this guy showed up from. And Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek. So he's a high priest, but he doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't fit the line. He doesn't go through the line of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah. And so he's a high priest because God anointed him as high priest, just like God anointed Melchizedek. He's from the order of Melchizedek. Jesus says the great high priest is priest and king. That's what Melchizedek is. He's the king of Salem, and he's also the great high priest of God. And Jesus is our priest, our high priest, and he's the king. Melchizedek, the, the, the name means king of righteousness. 
And Jesus is the king of righteousness, of all righteousness. Salem is short, most people believe it's short for Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. And who's Jesus? The king of all righteousness and the prince of peace. And Jesus comes as the high priest and as the king of all kings to rescue us. And so Melchizedek is pointing us to this day that there's a priest and king coming who will rule over all of them. Jesus as the great high priest has secured our salvation. This is where it gets really, really uh, amazing because the Old Testament, they had this sacrificial system. They were supposed to make sacrifices. They were supposed to kill animals and their blood was supposed to atone for the sins of the people. And so they did that every single day. In some way, they did that all the time. And Jesus is going to come and all that story and all that sacrificial system was setting the stage for Jesus to come and be the sacrificial lamb, to be the perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb that's going to come, behold the lamb of God who takes away our sin. And so all that sacrificial system was just pointed to the day that Jesus is going to come and offer the ultimate sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. Hebrews 7, verse 23 through 25 says it this way. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You have a priest, he would serve, he would die, they have another priest to take his place. But he, Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He conquered death and conquered the grave. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He secured our salvation by making the sacrifice that's once for all. No other priest is necessary anymore. We don't need another line of priests to come make sacrifices for us anymore because Jesus offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. I want you to see what we're talking about. I want you to see the image. We, we have an image of the holy place in the temple. And some of you have seen this before. And in that holy place, you had this, uh, in the front of that curtain, you see that curtain towards the back of the, of, of the tabernacle there? In the front of that was this holy place where the priests would go in and make daily offerings and daily sacrifices. But behind that curtain, that veil, was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And the high priest's job was once a year and only once a year. He would prepare himself and make offerings and sacrifices for himself and then he would cleanse himself and then he would go past the veil and he would go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt and he would make an atonement sacrifice for all the people. He would make one sacrifice once a year for all the sins of all the people for that year. And he would do that every single year. He would repeat that over and over and over again in this most holy place behind the veil. And Jesus shows up and he makes the sacrifice as the great high priest, but he offers himself as the sacrifice. He dies on the cross to secure our salvation. And you guys remember what happened when he died on the cross? The veil was torn from top to bottom. That veil, the Holy of Holies that separated us from the presence of God, it was torn because Jesus provides access. He, he grants us access to God because of his sacrifice. God saying, this sacrifice is accepted. This sacrifice is enough. This sacrifice is once and for all. No more sacrifices ever necessary. The sacrifice of the priest every single day and every single year was never going to take away our sin, was never going to take away our guilt. But Jesus' sacrifice, him, God in the flesh, offering himself as a sacrifice was sufficient. 
It took away our guilt and it took away our sin forever. And so he's entered into the holy holies and he's made himself the sacrifice. Hebrews 7, 27. He, Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He secured our salvation. You, you, you may be sitting here and going, I don't know for sure if I know what this means to have salvation secured for all eternity. Man, we would love to explain that, how Jesus taking your place and my place on the cross has provided the ultimate sacrifice and has provided a way for us to be with God forever. And Melchizedek's just a shadow of this high priest that Jesus is gonna be making the once for all sacrifice that's sufficient for all of eternity to secure us, to secure our salvation and bring us to God. We'd love to talk to you about that. One of the things you could say about this is that that's enough. If that's, if that's all Jesus ever did for us, that would be more than enough. It'd be more than we could ever deserve or ever even imagine that we would deserve. But that's not all he's done. This thing about Jesus being the great high priest teaches us that he continually does even more than that. He secured our salvation, and that's enough, but he's done more. He also intercedes for us. I don't know if you saw that in the last part of verse 25 of Hebrews 7. It says, they always live to make intercession for them. It says that in other places in the Bible. Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Have you thought about that in a while? Here's what Jesus is doing as the great high priest. His work is finished. His once for all sacrifice is done. So he sat down at the right hand of God, symbolizing that his work is complete. And now what he does is he prays for us. He intercedes for us. He, he's He's praying to God the Father for us as we continue on in this journey. It's, it's mind-blowing to even think about the fact that Jesus Christ at the right hand of God is praying for us continually. He always lives to make intercession for us. There's that story where Peter is saying, I'm gonna be with you to the end, and Jesus says, no, you're not, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny you even knew me three times. And then Jesus says something that we kind of forget a lot. He goes, but you know what? Your faith is not going to completely fail. You know why? Because I prayed for you. Every time you persevere through a difficult thing, every time you pursue Christ when you don't feel like it, every time you follow him and you, you make choices to follow him, every time it's because Jesus is interceding for us, that he's praying for us. It's not because we're so good. It's because he's everything we need. And he lives now, sitting at the right hand of the Father to pray for us, to intercede for us, to, to speak to the Father on our behalf, to give us strength, to give us comfort, to give us everything we need for this journey that he's called us to in this life. He intercedes for us. He's granted us access. Jesus, the great high priest, has granted us access to God. And I don't want you to miss this. I mean, of all the things he's done, it should be enough. But like, this will be what gets you through this week. He's given us access to everything we could possibly need and more because of what he's done as high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you don't have that verse underlined in your Bible, this would be a good time to do it. Everything you need, because he's the high priest. We don't have a high priest that doesn't understand our struggles. No, he sympathizes with our struggles. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted. Guys, you ever had a friend betray you? You ever had somebody let you down, turn their back on you, you thought you were friends and it just, it hurts so bad? Guess what? Jesus knows exactly how you feel. His best friend betrayed him. His best friend denied he even knew him. One of his closest friends turned him over to be killed. You ever had people that you don't know if you can trust them or not? It feels like they're always setting you up for a trap or something? Man, Jesus was surrounded by those people all the time. You ever had people that it just feels like they just want what you can do for them and they don't want anything else? And Jesus was surrounded by people like that all the time. In every way that we were tempted, he was tempted. In every weakness that we experienced because he took on flesh, he experiences that weakness in every way. But here's the deal. He never gave in. He never fell. He, he never faltered. He never sinned. He never gave in to the temptation. So guess what? He can sympathize with us. He can understand how we feel. And he can help us. He can help us like no one else can because he knows exactly what we went through, but he conquered it. So guess what? We can, with confidence, because of what Jesus did for us, we can approach him. We can go to him for help. He's interceding for us. We can go to him and ask him to help us, and we will receive grace, and we will receive mercy exactly the way we need it. Why? Because he's the great high priest. Melchizedek showed up, and we don't even know where from, and he blessed Abram, and he reminded Abram that everything good in his life has come from God. And Jesus shows up to remind us that we can't do anything on our own, but, but God has provided everything we could possibly ever need, our salvation and our help every single moment of every single day because Jesus has provided that access, he's provided that salvation, and he intercedes for us as we serve him. Let's thank him and let's pray. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the reminder that we get from it, of your faithfulness, of all the things that you accomplished through Jesus Christ that we had no chance and no hope of accomplishing on our own. God, we thank you for that today. God, we want to we worship you in response to that today. So as we take the bread and we take the cup, God, I pray that you would remind us of the sacrifice, the, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, the high priest that you made for us. And that we will respond by taking the cup, taking the bread, worshiping you with our lives, worshiping you with our voices because of your great love for us demonstrated on the cross. And God, we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest who helps us exactly with what we need. And it's in his name we pray, amen.